0: And welcome to Sides, the weekly podcast that takes the very juiciest, best bits out of the Startup Daily TV show on Ausbiz every weekday at 2pm. We're going to talk with some amazing people about some amazing stuff in startups and tech. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net and co-host of the show, along with this guy.
1: I'm Elliot Hasty, and Simon, despite it being a shorter week, for the Easter break, we still managed to get in plenty of great conversations.
0: I love the fact that also, despite being a short week, we've managed to get plenty of rain in, in Sydney too. Uh, oh,
1: of course, you got two <laughs> days of... look, I wasn't here for the long weekend, but I believe that there was four full days of sun. You got greedy, oh, guys.
0: It was the best, yes. I know you are up in the Sunshine State where it was living <laughs> up to its name. But, yeah, look, it was a great Easter break. But, yeah, we haven't mucked around, Elliot... Nor, I have to say, has Elon Musk. Uh, the adventures of Musklandia continue this week, of course, with Tesla releasing its earnings for Q1 2022. Wow. Pretty impressive numbers.
1: Uh, absolutely it is. Like, it you know, beat analyst expectations. It reported record revenue, 81% increase. But to be honest, it didn't actually, considering the numbers, the share price didn't skyrocket. It wasn't to the moon um, as, you know, one would expect from those sort of numbers.
0: Well, what's even more extraordinary, I think, is that about two weeks ago, around about April 4, the share price was at 1145. Today it dropped around about 5% in overnight trade to around 977. So it's still well down, which when the net income came in at around $3.22 a share, automotive revenues were up 87% year on year to – Roughly 16.9 billion US dollars, record revenue of 18.76 billion US dollars, an 81% increase all up. I mean, the things are trending pretty well. If you remember back a decade, I'm not sure if you do, but I do, (laughs) when the entire US car industry almost fell over, and it was up to the Obama administration during the GFC to bail them out at the time. You look at how this company's performing now, absolutely astonishing, 310,000 vehicles delivered in uh, Q1, 95% of those are Model 3s and Model Ys. And of course, the man himself is saying, look, if you want a car, you're not going to get one for quite a while.
1: Well, and I think that's the part that investors are now going, wait a, wait a minute here, because even he says, you know, oh, you know, we should be fine even considering the COVID shutdowns you're having across China. Like, Does he have a stockpile? Is there other things going on? You know, I think investors are rightly actually going, there's a lot of talk here. Will he actually be able to deliver? And more importantly, will people actually want to wait a year for a car?
0: Well, there are people who pay $10,000 for a Birkin bag, and I think they wait a year to get one of those, Elliot. So just sort of think of the Tesla as the Birkin bag of four wheels.
1: I, yeah, I don't know. I just think that there's other options out there, and someone that is definitely finding out that there's other options out there is Netflix. But, of course, it's not their fault. It's password sharing to blame for this, their fall in earnings, Simon.
0: Oh, uh, look, I find this rather extraordinary. It's a little bit like Alan Joyce blaming the customers for what went wrong <laughs> at the airports over Easter. Yeah, you expect a little bit of that leakage, but, you know, this is rather extraordinary. I heard the number 100 million people. Really? 100 million people around the world showing passwords?
1: I, but, like, I'm trying to think, because there's the family packages, you can get five people online pretty cheaply. Like, surely most of the leakages that they're talking about Our family packages anyway and you might be across multiple devices and I don't know how they'd ever close it anyway.
0: Well, I'm a subscriber to Netflix and I have to say one of the things I noticed that made me rethink what we were going to do was when they put the prices up about 20% at Christmas time off the back of an earlier price increase that was around about 15% a year earlier. So maybe sometimes in a highly competitive market, you may be pricing yourself out of the market. And the options are here in ways that they weren't a decade ago. Of course, I've had a go at Binge. We've just signed up for KO. That's a little bit more expensive. I don't
1: have KO. That's the, I think that's the only one I don't have.
0: Well, the extraordinary thing is I, I'm now just sort of thinking the early days of when pay TV used to come out and mm. started here. And it used to cost us sort of $70, 80 $90 a month. We're now starting to get back to that point with all the subscriptions.
1: If only there was a platform that could bring all the subscriptions in together, all the different channels. Oh, wait, we've been here before. (laughs) But we've discovered with my family what we've done is each person will pay for one subscription service. So you get access to sort of actually I think that's a lie. I think I only pay for one and someone else might pay for two. But we get access to all of them but only one person is bearing the brunt of a cost for it.
0: Well, you know, I just find it extraordinary the idea that 50% of the business is actually, you know, basically being given away for free, which seems to be the Netflix argument. But the the struggle for them, of course, is the share price well, after the revenue was down around about ten percent year on year fell nearly forty percent
1: as a consequence. That's pretty hard hit, and it took everyone else down with it. Disney, Paramount, Roku, Warner Brothers, Discovery. No one was safe. Simon.
0: I yep. But uh, have you been watching anything on Netflix? I've been getting into The Last Kingdom. I'm a big fan of Vikings, you know, I have Scandinavian heritage, so Mm -hmm. the whole Ragnar Lofbrok thing did it for me. Now there's another one about a a bloke growing up in medieval England under
1: Alfred the Great, sort of
0: got a bit of a temper, Um, rather good-looking young man, sort of running
1: around, sort of sticking
0: swords into people that annoy him. Fantastic.
1: I mean, I'm all all about that. I think at the moment, actually, I don't have any new shows on Netflix. I'm eagerly awaiting uh, Umbrella Academy Season 3, but also... I'm just waiting out for the boys on Amazon. Like, Amazon is doing really great stuff, although not many people have it.
0: <laughs> well, that,
1: that's the thing, that We're
0: spoilt for choice, so I think we're going to see a lot of customer churn. Uh, and if people are managing their budgets, I think the other thing, of course, too, is that we've gone from being stuck in our house to being able to go
1: outside, you know, and We're back at work. Unless you're in Sydney, in which case the rain is really keeping us there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but uh, it's just that I think there's been this shift from, they they had a great tailwind for two years during COVID and lockdowns, but uh, perhaps we're not realising we're spending too much time in front of the TV and there are other things to do.
1: Speaking of other things, you had a great chat, Simon, this week with Guy Headley from Stoic VC about sort of the others are being missed out when it comes to venture capital funding.
0: Absolutely. This was a really interesting conversation. As you know, I'm a big fan of deep tech and investing in that. So we caught up with Guy, who I've asked to be a regular. We'll be back on in a couple of weeks from Stoic VC about you know, the fact that there have been record funds into VC and investment in startups over the last couple of years. And of course, amid those tailwinds, there are nonetheless startups being left behind. And this has some pretty big implications because we're talking about climate tech. I know we started to see a little bit of a shift along the way, but these are amazing companies with amazing ideas that are transformative. They're not just a little bit of software to manage your streaming service subscriptions. It's uh, other, bigger, bolder, life-changing ideas and so we spoke to Guy about what's going on and what we need to think about. Here's what he said.
2: I guess just to counter some of the perception that's out there, though, a lot of that is actually heading towards two areas, and that is fintech and clearly biased towards the buy now, pay later. Um, what was you know, I guess a fashionable uh, area to invest into and really into B2B productivity tools. So Atlassian and, and companies like that. And a lot of the, what I would call the deep tech Part of the market. So healthcare, clean tech has actually found itself perversely in a situation where it's very difficult to attract capital. Um, you know, 4% of VC funds raised in, in, in startups over the last 12 months and 1% uh, in clean tech. So 4% healthcare, 1% clean tech. Um, that's the issue.
1: I mean, that's really interesting that it is such a low proportion of the funding goes to, you know, the clean tech and the health techs, which as you said, Do have sort of life changing implications. Well, as I joked at the time,
0: imagine being a female founder in this (laughs) subcategory, where where you'd be zero, 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 one percent of a chance of getting funding. Um, But look, it was I asked him about how do we shift perceptions? Because of course, he makes a point that there are some really good ideas coming out of universities, and I really was interested in how he pitched this idea to the broader investment community.
2: I think we realign our thinking around um, how we treat university research. Now, I think as you know our, you know, our venture capital fund um, partners with all the big universities to fund um, commercialization of university research. And my sense is that most of the great ideas that are coming out in deep tech are coming out of universities and out of CSIROs So the place to start is obviously how do you support them better and how do you support the university research product better so that there's actually a, you know, more stuff coming out? But then it's turning around to the market and looking at a venture capital and, and really just saying, OK, it's not just about you know, taking a 10 year horizon. A lot of these companies will actually end up commercializing much faster than that. It's about actually trying. How do you actually go about educating the market that clean tech, deep tech in Australia is a real thing? And that there are a lot of really high quality opportunities that deserve to get funded.
1: I think I really enjoyed what Guy said there. And I guess for me, listening to it, particularly as we are in the election cycle and we are listening to sort of promises about funding and stuff, it is sort of, you've, it seems like they're battling uphill in Australia to get across the line how innovative and how long thinking you should be thinking when it comes to clean tech and, and you know, health tech as well. Well, there's certainly
0: tones set by political leaders, and it's a really important thing because people do pick up on it. But we are talking about private markets here, Mm. and so it's up to private markets to make these decisions. And I suppose a little bit like the conversations we've had around diversity, about investing in women, it's up to people to act. It's up to us to keep having these conversations on Startup Daily and putting forward the case for these great opportunities. And so we got to Unisuper, $75 million investment in Uniseed in the last couple of weeks off the back of the conversation around great ideas in Unis. He makes the point that we're getting pretty good now at the early stage stuff. That was a hole, the valley of death that we've fixed up and we're engaged with, and there are funds for these solutions. The problem potentially now for deep tech is losing them offshore because you get into those later stage rounds. And will the capital be there?
2: My congratulations to UniSuper for making what is a very brave move, because typically super funds have avoided um, early stage venture capital. So that that is really incredible. I think the issue is that, you know, it's 75 million dollars, which is really a drop in in the ocean. Um, A lot of the issue around deep tech and clean tech funding is that they actually end up being very big checks that get written in later stage. So, you know, we are there early stage, where they are supporting seed stage and working through the AB rounds. It's when you get to the C rounds, the D rounds, the E rounds, what we don't want to see, and I think what Australia doesn't want to see, is these companies having to migrate to the US or European markets to continue their funding rounds.
1: So timely of that as well. I think it was one of the papers was having the story about a guy that said, yep, thanks to the investment in me as a person, I'm now offshore to complete it. And you don't want you don't want that. You want people that are building onshore to continue to stay onshore because there's a good environment, because there's capital here. Um, you, you know, you want to keep them in the ecosystem. It's an age-old debate
0: around investment in Australia and us. our, our ideas being capitalised offshore and, of course, the benefits to investors blowing on that front. We had a couple of great chats this week, I mean, one with another deep tech investor in Phil Moyle from Main Secrets Ventures. I would say one of the other themes of this week has been being a CEO, what it's like, how you do it, you know, when do you change horses, what's going on. So there's some really good discussions around that. Phil's written another great column for us this week. He's on the show every fortnight and he was talking about, you know, being a founder of a, a startup and probably it's the first time you've done it, so you're learning on the job. And of course, when you are learning on the job, you are going to have some weaknesses. So I asked him, how do you
3: tackle those? What you shouldn't do is pretend you don't have weaknesses. It's okay to have weaknesses. Everybody has weaknesses. The discipline is looking at yourself and surrounding yourself with people that help you to identify what those weaknesses are and then having a plan for removing them. That either means you need to work on yourself to build strength where there was weakness in your own skill set or to hire people in some priority order that starts to build strength in the company around you. But the first step is actually understanding what those weaknesses are. And that can be hard. You know, it's CEOs often have big egos. That's another important part of being a, a good CEO is to have enough ego to say, This thing that doesn't exist, myself and my company, we're going to make that happen. But you have to look beyond that and transcend your own ego and say, Where am I weak? How do I make this stronger?
1: What I really loved about that conversation with Phil is you can even extract it and take away the CEO from it because he does talk about imposter syndrome, which is something that I'm sure many people in the workforce feel at, at one point or another. And, you know, he's right in saying, Everyone's got weaknesses. You're going to have a weakness, but what you need to do is look at that and figure out how it can help you. So it's a really good life lesson um, as well that I certainly took from it.
0: He made some really great points, and you can read more of this piece as well as watching it on uh, ausbiz.com.au on catch-up, around how you should think like an athlete in terms of building discipline and regular um, basically learning into what you do as a CEO. You train explicitly what he says with a daily routine that builds your capability. But then that comes to an interesting point. You know, we all know you can jump so far, so high, run so fast. What do you do when you know you need someone who can run faster? That's when you have to replace yourself. That's a pretty big, bold move. We talked to another CEO who went through that experience this week, but here's Phil's advice
3: on this front. You know, let's not forget, and CEOs do forget this sometimes, that that they are, well, in most cases, they're the founder of the company. They're a major shareholder in the company. And this is where they're aligned with everybody else that's involved. They They want that company to be big and successful. Now, the horrible thought is maybe one of the reasons it won't be is because of you, because you do not have all the skills there to actually do that job and i think in that situation you've got to be looking at yourself so hard that you are prepared to replace yourself and that always comes best when it comes from the ceo themselves actually deciding that not other people deciding it for them but that's not always needed and usually what happens is that these sparring partners come in as you suggest and those sparring partners often Fill in that gap and complete the hole that was missing before.
1: It is really great advice. I would recommend to anyone that's just looking for a little bit of life coaching, shall so we say, to definitely check out the Phil interview. Now, Simon, one of the interesting conversations we had this week was about startup branding. Now, I have to say, I'm not entirely sure I agree with Drew Usher's from Hotwire's assessment. On where we should be looking for further colours.
0: Well, Elliot, I just looked across at you and I realised you're in a blue shirt with blue (laughs) pants and brown shoes. You should see. I am in a blue top with blue pants and brown shoes. It's like we are twins at this point in time, generationally, sort of slightly apart, but definitely twins on the blue thing. This was research that uh, they put together with Dr. Stacey Brennan from the University of Sydney School of Business. She works in marketing. They were looking at scale-ups and how they operated, and we're talking about listed uh, tech companies at this point in time. Now, I wrote this up and got them on the show, but I made the joke that Blue is the new beige because as they looked at hundreds and hundreds of companies, they found that more than half of them use blue for their logo and (laughs) it means that you are a little bit bland as a consequence if everyone is in blue. Here's what Drew had to say about that.
3: The study that we undertook really, it was an analysis of uh, tech companies at different stages of growth and we wanted to understand really how branding plays a part in driving that business growth. And uh amongst other findings we did find that uh you know over 50% of uh, tech companies across all stages of growth do rely on blue and of course if everybody relies on blue then it's very hard to differentiate or distinguish your tech from the next tech and i think when we uh when we realize now that you know almost all companies are tech or tech enabled then standing out from the crowd really becomes quite important and uh, i think if anything our study gives us permission to say let's let's ditch the blue and and look elsewhere i think
1: i'm really sorry drew as someone with blue eyes and that is my best feature i'm going to completely disagree with you blue brings them out i will forever champion blue um there's nothing wrong with it, Elliot, <laughs> but is fifty percent of the population got blue eyes or
0: you know, because I'm a little more of a green and hazel kind of guy. Uh I just sort of think if you are looking at your message and you've got a way to stand out from the crowd, interestingly they did a little bit of an experiment with a fake BNPL where they use green as one of the colours. Within a couple of minutes, a company that no one had ever heard of before they generated the same emotional connection with people that these existing brands who've spent millions on marketing along the way have too, which I think is a little bit of a lesson.
1: I was going to say, well, there you go to the purple-coloured BNPL on the stock market. Maybe instead of changing a ticket code, we should be looking into a colour palette. But you did also have a conversation, um, you know, with Dr Stacey Brennan from the University of Sydney that sort of helped, helped along um, and said, you know, there is that functional versus emotional branding issue that you also have to consider.
0: Yeah, this is kind of sounds a little bit like the product engineer has been doing the marketing because of course, if you think about the great ads, the ones that make us cry, Telstra is really good at it.
4: I
1: think the one for me that will always make me cry is Qantas and even spending three hours on the phone to their help desk. I'm like, I still call Australia. Like I get it. I'm still there. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Stuff like that is the point or the Westpac Lifesaver helicopter ads, you know, it's a big four basically just flogging you know the feel-good part of what it does. that emotional marketing is a real, branding is a really important part of being successful because what they found in the numbers was that there's a really strong reliance on what they call functional branding in Australian startups. Put it another way they're selling steak and not the sizzle. And that's a big problem. So I asked Dr Brennan about this and the differences between how companies are operating overseas and what we're seeing in Australia.
5: Look at high performing uh, tech brands, we notice that they employ more emotional strategies when they do their branding, whether or not that's through a tagline or other types of devices. Uh, where if we look at scale-up tech brands, they don't have a lot of emotion. A lot of their branding or marketing communication is completely functionally oriented. They talk about their product and what it offers as opposed to the benefits consumers can uh, receive if they adopt those products, for example. So high-performing tech tend to focus more on the human element, trying to build a connection with consumers where scale-up tech are still primarily focusing on their product as opposed to people.
1: I think it was a really interesting conversation um, that you had, Simon, and certainly one for a lot of different people uh, to check out. Now, one of the other ones I really like, Simon, I think both you and I might need to sign up to it, is Llama Life, who the founder, Mary Ong, joined us on the show, who taught herself how to code during lockdown with the platform to help ease distractions.
0: I know, isn't she fantastic? We had a couple of really cracking conversations, especially with female founders this week, and this is one of them. You know, this is about the distractions. And of course, we get plenty of them. It can be email, it can be a whole, you know, your
1: colleagues or you know. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> sorry, social media. Yeah, distractions. yeah.
0: All, all <laughs> those. What, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> um, so, Llama Life is this great business. Now, Jason Calacanis, the US investor and the syndicate Launch, which is both an accelerator and investment group, have backed this business in its round. As it goes global so it's an amazing little story about just helping with productivity and focus what i loved about this is that marie kind of got the name from visiting south america with a friend and just seeing how happy everyone was hanging around llamas so she was inspired by the calm that that brought and the focus and decided she'd call the business llama the next best thing about that was the customers started calling their interactions with the business llama life and she built this great following on Twitter explaining her journey, and it got really, really fun to the point where she changed the name of the business based on the way the customers were describing it, and thus came Llama Life. But when we caught up with her, I did have to ask her how it all came about.
5: So um, Llama Life is a productivity tool that helps you work through a to-do list, not just make never-ending lists. And it does this by managing your attention, and your focus not just your time and you know it really came about like you said as a a bit of a passion project uh during covid everybody's kind of picking a new skill to learn and i decided to teach myself how to code so this is kind of back uh, just a couple of years ago now and um you know as i was teaching myself to code uh, i was trying to figure out what project i can do to actually apply that learning and llama life was kind of, it was the first thing I built. You know, one of the things you build when you learn to code is a to-do list because it's a very good way of practicing how to work with data, you know, creating a task, deleting a task and managing that data flow. Um, So that was kind of the first reason it came about. But the second reason is because I got diagnosed with ADHD about 10 years ago now. And I've always been looking for different tools to help me manage my focus, managing, manage my workload during the day. And I just couldn't find something that worked for me and how my brain worked. So it was kind of, um, you know, two birds with one stone, learning how to code, making something, but also trying to create a tool that really resonated with what I wanted and had the features that, that I wanted.
1: It's a really inspiring story. And certainly for a CEO and founder to immediately go, Ah, oh, actually this is a better name from customer feedback is a great lesson that would take her far, I think.
0: Yeah, and the other fantastic thing about that, as she mentioned, she was diagnosed with ADHD. So, you know, that neurodiversity that the company is also addressing along the way in helping people focus, I think is been a big part of his success. So it was great to chat with her. She got $950,000 in a pre-seed raise. You can read more about that on startupdaily.net, or go back and have a look at our conversation because it was a great chat.
1: And that links in really well, Simon, with one of your other tra- uh, chats, Kinship, which is even more topical now considering what we saw... well, considering what we've heard we saw in the leadership debate last night from our two contending Prime Ministers.
0: Look, um, I'm going to stay away from that. But again, (laughs) I think the important thing is embracing neurodiversity. We've done some great steps on that front. But Summer Petrosias, she's launched this. They're down in South Australia at Stone and Chalk. And every Wednesday we like to catch up with a founder from down in that neck of the woods, She came up with this idea for a social networking app for parents raising children with disabilities, delays and neurodiversity. I can imagine that sometimes, and this was the question I think that was put to the Prime Minister, around how you can feel a little bit isolated, how you're going to solve the problems of the world. She's built a community for parents dealing with these issues. It was a great conversation, um, you know, and the name Kindship comes from a combination of kindness, friendship and kinship. So... She's put all of that together, put it all onto an amazing app. I asked her to tell us how it all came about.
4: So, Kinship is a combination of the words kinship, friendship and kindness, which is what we really hope our platform stands for and are really treating it as almost the DNA of everything that we do. Um, And in terms of how it came about, so that's quite a long story that I'll cut down, um, but my background is speech pathology. So I'm a paediatric speech pathologist specialised in working with children with autism. Um, so I first came up with the bubble of a thought of what would become Kindship when I was working at a school for children with quite significant disabilities and realised that even though the parents there were connected through a school community, they were still incredibly isolated and I would often spend my mornings and evenings at the school gate just being that social contact for that person for their week, um, which I was very honoured to do, but also was quite aware of the fact that I didn't know what it meant to take their children home at the end of the day and what a difference it could make for them to be able to speak to somebody who did. Um, Fast forward a couple of years, I took that kernel of an idea and decided I wanted to do something with it, um, but I knew that it needed to be very much community led. So I talked to 500 families from around the world to understand their experience of disability and what that meant for their family and so many of them spoke about um, you know, the impact of isolation and chronic loneliness and um, what that meant for both their health but also their children's health um, and from there we had 200 of those families join us as founding members so it's really been a, a platform that's been um, community built from day one. And in doing all of those conversations, I actually decided to go down the path of getting my own autism diagnosis at the age of 30. Um, Just seeing how positive the parents were in terms of what their children were capable of and um, just, I guess, the beauty of neurodiversity, it it really made me feel um, that, you know, that was something that I was willing to kind of put myself through and I'm very glad that I did in the end.
0: How amazing is that? Talking to 500 families and, you know, The chronic isolation and issues that they suffer from, Uh, and then of course her going and getting her own diagnosis as a consequence, and realising that she also was on the spectrum. I just love what she's done. I love the story, you know, and just hanging around with people um, who she her, her heart. I just felt her heart in this. This is why I love doing these stories. This is why I love talking to founders because they are the most amazing people doing amazing transformative things. We
4: are the first social networking app for parents raising children. We like to say with disabilities, delays and neurodiversity, we're tr- trying to be as inclusive as possible. Um, and we are really about connecting, informing and empowering who, one of um, arguably Australia's most disadvantaged populations. So we're doing that through peer support, connecting parents with other parents who have been there before and can share that experience and that incredible insight that only comes from, you know, having yeah, had a child in that situation before.
1: Well, Simon, another short week uh, for us, obviously here, another short week for us. Next week, of course, with the Anzac Day long weekend, but we've still got plenty of people to talk to in that time.
0: Absolutely, Elliot. Uh, Look, I hope everyone has a great long weekend. I'll be thinking of my grandfather, Ian Wilbur Boyd, who served in the AIF in the Middle East during the Second World War, my great-great-grandfather who was on the Western Front back in the First World War, my great-uncle, who uh, Neville Digby Thompson Boyd, who... Died. He was an Air Force pilot over in the UK uh, during the war and uh, unfortunately didn't come home. I'm glad my grandfather Mm -hmm. did because I'm here today to remember them. So what can I say? Lest we forget.
1: Absolutely. I've still got to ask my 101-year-old granddad whose birthday I celebrated at a busy bar in Brisbane, mind you. Um, I still haven't asked him how his time was when serving, although He was very engaged in a conversation on his 101st on the benefits of Viagra. So I think he was quite busy with the girls at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good on you, granddad. Look, everyone, have a
0: great weekend. Thanks for joining us on Suds. We'll see you next Friday. And uh, Elliot, you take care.